for me, warm-up songs are amazing. So take any song and, you know, don't stick to the same one over and over again, because then it becomes passive again. But take, take any song that has a repetitive phrase and start to listen to it and hold an isometric. And every time you hear the word, you do a concentric exercise or, mm. you know, you do whatever exercise you want to do. Um, what it forces you to do it, it's forcing you to stay present. You can't zone out and be thinking about the kids or this or that because you have to be listening to the lyrics to understand when to perform the rep. That was Richard Chavez, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. If you're a coach tired of using Excel or clunky software for your athletes, you'll definitely be interested in today's sponsor, Strength Coach Pro. Strength Coach Pro is a digital training platform designed to help strength coaches create, distribute, and track programs for their clients. It's easy to tell that Strength Coach Pro was created by a coach for coaches. The versatile program builder makes it easy to build out detailed training programs, distribute them to athletes, and track the progress, all without spreadsheets or data entry. One of the best things about Strength Coach Pro is that there are no recurring fees. You pay one fee and you get lifetime access to the program. And to check out what Strength Coach Pro can do for you, head to strengthcoachpro.com. That's strengthcoachpro.com. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. It's great to have you here. Our guest today is Richard Achevez. Richard is a coach, an educator, and mentor. He runs movement workshops and retreats. He's a podcast host and former gym owner. Richard is a pioneer in the world of movement and particularly in context of the mind-body connection within the training process. Richard explores and prioritizes the understanding and the ability to dig into the physical, mental, and emotional components of a training session, of the training process. On the show today, Richard will be covering what sparked his interest in that mind-body connection, and he'll be going into his near-death experience, injury, and rehab and how that set him on his journey to where he is today. Throughout the episode, he'll be covering those physical, mental, and emotional aspects of training, uh, how to really dig and dial in to each of those specifically in a training session. He'll be going into his immersive warm-up process, how he seeks to build a social rapport, help athletes get into more of a flow state within the training session, get into more of a present-mindedness. He'll be talking about his use of music within training, as well as the mental and emotional dynamics that he feels define a good conditioning session and a poor one. So often we just talk about, well, how much conditioning should we even do, let alone the actual mental and emotional state behind it. And so much of what Richard says, it transcends the typical sets, reps, and exercise technique. This gets into something that no matter what sport you coach or work with, or whether you're an athlete or a coach, so much of this is so highly relevant. I really believe that more and more training and conversations and coaching is going to be going in this direction. And it was an honor to sit down and chat with Richard for the show. So excited to get this uh, episode started for you. Let's get to episode 346 with Richard Achevez. Richard, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm really interested in, and I've listened to a few podcasts that you've done uh, talking about the world of mind, emotions, emotional states. I'm curious what sparked your interest in that. I think it's very easy in coaching just to look at methods and exercises and sets and reps. And then a lot of times we pay credence to the mind. Oh, yeah, the mind's important. But what right. what was your journey? Like, what really got you interested and in, into that element of training and human performance? Yeah. So, I mean, I think 
I'll go off very quickly. I was in a rock climbing accident where I almost lost my life. I was at it'd be in feet, so eighteen thousand three hundred feet of altitude, five thousand meters. Spent ten hours on the mountain. Took about five months of laying in bed and relearning how to walk, and that was really my spark into understanding the human body more and everything that's involved with it. Relearning to walk and trying to do physiotherapy for me was almost a joke, in a sense, because I'd done research and I was very passionate about if I'm first and foremost the surgeon that did the work on me. You know, my hip broke into about thirty pieces. I have ulnar replacement that had to be redone. They told me you're not going to walk. Like you'll walk, but you'll be sedentary most of your life. We won't do anything. I'm a very much a contrarian, so I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong, and that's really sparked my my intrigue in understanding the potential of the human body. And with that being said, most of my training was very intuitive, but there was a lot of background and reading and and how it moves and how it works. And so when I went to the physiotherapist once I. Was just starting to learn to walk. They had me on like square one, where I was already on like square twenty-five, and I was like, "This is just ridiculous!" Mm-hmm. Like it just feels like you guys are just checking boxes, and so that that really sparked me to get into coaching people is being able to show them that their limitations, a lot of their limitations physically, are only a construct of their mind, and from there, it was you know I opened up a CrossFit gym and. CrossFit really helped me out with my mountaineering days, and so I figured this was the best way. And this is back in 2009. I was like, this is a place where I see the trend kind of uptrending very quickly because it it has done a lot for strength and conditioning and for performance if applied correctly. And I've, I'm a very intuitive trainer, so the biggest thing was I would notice a difference on how I was training versus how I was feeling and my range of motion, uh, my skill, my technique, my connection to the movement, my approach to the exercise. And then as I started to coach people, I would see different expressions on their faces as workouts got harder, as things were easier. When we were doing more upper body days, they would be more laughing and talking and having a good time. When it was deadlifts or back squats, it'd be a lot more aggressive. I would have mo- mothers that never done fitness before and they would finish these workouts and they would be crying. And I was like, what is going on with these emotional expressions? Guys that were veterans or in the military would have the- these outbursts of anger. And so we all understand that training is emotional at some point, right? And it's not emotional that it needs to be crying and, and outbursts of anger or or joy. But we all understand, especially if you're in the performance field, your best performances are when you're aligned there emotionally. There's something that you cannot explain or put into words as much as you'd like to. It's an experience. It's something you live. And so for me, that was one of the biggest turning points is we cannot pretend that performance, sports performance at any matter is a purely physical standpoint. And it's also not it is mental, but it's not only, it's not also mental only. And so the, for me, the biggest thing is the emotional component is the combination or the communication between the physical and the mental in order to have this emotional expression. And that for me makes me feel when you have that training session where you don't remember reps or sets or what you were doing, it just felt good. You just felt amazing doing it. 
whether it was hard or easy, doesn't matter. You felt good. Everything was aligned for this workout or this training session or this test of your training. This objective was just on that flow, shall we say? Yeah. And that's, that's the start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I love that. It's taken me a long time. I mean, you had those experiences early on in your life. It took me till my late twenties to actually see and notice that my athlete's emotional state was impacting their performance. I had, I think I've told this experience on this podcast before, but I had an athlete who was a high jumper uh, when I was coaching back in division three. And it was a thing where I was definitely playing favorites with some of my better athletes. Some of the athletes who weren't performing as high in conference, I would wasn't spending as much time with them. So there was many days where I'd say, hey, here's the workout for the day and not even coach them. In. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, maybe right. there was other groups to coach too. Like I had multiple groups at once, but I would, sw- I would be flipping between groups and this athlete, I may have barely even seen her on a given day. And of course, if I could go back in time, I would change all that. But right. she was, I remember I, I walked in the, the gym where she was doing some plyometrics and I saw her like, she just looked really like sad, down, depressed. And I was like, and this is me just totally naive. Like I get, we all, I think we all go into things with the best intentions. Oh, I'm writing you a great workout. Here's a piece of paper. Like, of course you're going to adapt well. And she right. basically had expressed, you know, and it's, 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 sounds so silly for me to talk about my former coaching life. I'm like, man, how stupid was I? But I mean, I, I hadn't, it's funny because I had no idea. To me, everything was a piece of paper, sets, reps, the technical progressions. And she was just expressing how, just how basically dejected she was that I didn't pay any attention to her. And throughout the next week or two, I forget how this got decided, but she actually decided to go with the other track coach was the distance coach who used to coach high jump. He wasn't like a jumper, but he coached it and he gave her a lot of attention. And I remember walking down the sidewalk and I was watching them working together and I just saw her like bouncing around, like literally bouncing, like, like there is, and the more I go through it, like there's an emotion to that too. Like she was happy. She was bouncing. She was instantly jumping three inches higher, just like that. And I was like, right. Oh. And I was like, oh, <laughs> and the that, lesson was learned that day. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was like, okay, I, I get it. Like and I, I had put so much validation on my own ability to write this ultimate, you know, I, and programming obviously is important, but. If there isn't, I look back on every time in my life where I did really well as an athlete. And I always like, wow, I was like, wow, that environment was really good. I had a really good right. training partner. I had like a really supportive coach. I had a really good training group. There was sometimes even I was compete like running sprints with my athletes twice a week when I was coaching and, and, you know, kind of trying to stay with them. And, and it, even that, that always, uh, I remember one time. Uh, sorry, I'm like, I'm like, just you, you were talking. I was like, oh, oh listen, listen, it, listen it, to all it. the times that I had this emotional experience. <laughs> I'll just say this is the last time, and then I'll then I'll stop. But I, I, uh, I had, I had the experience to, I got to do some intervals, some 200s with the Olympic high jumper guy who was the silver medalist in the 2000 Olympics, and I, he just, we, nice. he just sent me a message one day. This is when I was in Berkeley at business in town, and uh, you know, we just showed up to do some sprints at a track and grab coffee, and I remember like. It, literally the first run just being in the presence of this guy like it felt like something was different in my body like something changed right. and like i'm like so, like my stride loosened up like i was flying without even trying like running and this guy's like six seven taking these huge bouncing strides and 
I remember the next day I felt like my glute, my left like glute was feeling it like in a really good way. I was like, man, did I work that glute? And I wasn't even trying. It's like something about anyway. So it's just been this journey over time for me that I was originally so in this place where I, that wasn't even my on my radar. And every year I, I see in more of that and more of that. And I think maybe we're in a place too, though, where I think a, a lot of us know this is important, but like actually kind of quantifying it. You know, like you had mentioned, this is physical, right. mental, emotional. What percentage? How is this? You know, how and why? I, I think yeah, the more we uh, know, the better it can help us out. But and and I think you know, you mentioned a couple of great points there, right? So writing the perfect program and what you thought was the was the perfect program might have been for one person, but not the other. And one of the biggest things that I see in the fitness world is the regurgitation of information, right? And so this information is being given through these data points. And the data points work for, you know, usually what, the 80%, 70 percentile. And there's a lot that's not being taken into consideration. So, hey, how are you feeling? (laughs) Right? So she was feeling down. So she would have failed whatever sort of data test you were trying to do on on your program anyways. And so there's, there's a difference. And that's the difference between a good or okay coach and a great coach is a good coach can regurgitate information, can provide any methodology that you learn from starting strength to, you know, sprint intervals, whatever it may be. I mean, let's be real. All those coaches are going to be completely out of work in the next year and a half because of chat GPT and the AI being able to write everything. So the only thing that we have left in order to become a great coach is knowledge and wisdom. And that knowledge and wisdom comes in, I don't know how you're going to feel coming in the next day. Because if you're coming in and I'm expecting you to do a five by five, or I'm expecting you to do 100 repeats and your dog just passed away, or you got in a fight with your wife or your kids were up all night with the flu and you didn't sleep, we're going to need to adjust this program in order to best suit what you can do today. Right. And that's, the, that's also part of that, that emotional part. So when I look at training and when I work with my clients, it's about where are you today? What has happened in the past and where do we want to be? All I'm focusing on is where you are today and how I can move you forward because I can't change the past. I and mean, we can start to change perceptions on the past, but I can help you to go towards the future. And, and that requires an emotional connection, like a true connection with your client or your athlete. And that, that, that's the, the, the changing factor between somebody not wanting, even though they could have all the talent of the world, if they don't want to be in the race, I mean, you've seen you say in Bolt's documentary, he didn't want to be in the race anymore. So he's like, yeah, fuck it. And then he started going downhill. You can take the grace of athletes. If they don't want to be there, we're humans. If we don't want to be there, we don't want to fucking be there. We won't perform. Or we do, and then you end up having, you know, just like other performers in, in the music industry, suicides and overdoses and addictions and all other things. So the key for me is always looking at, am I providing knowledge to my athletes? Meaning, am I making them better as humans on the day-to-days for a long-term value? And can I provide them what they need for their short-term reward, which is their sport? Right? And so when I look at, when you look at any athlete, there's three major things. And this is, uh, this is my guiding principle that I work with, right? So all training needs to have a combination of physical, mental, and emotional stimulus, right? That stimulus is working through the phylogenetic hierarchy and through the nervous system. Uh, so we're talking exposure therapy, but basically what state are they in? Are they more in a complete, complete collapse state in the free state? 
Are they in a sympathetic flight state? Are they feeling like they're being hunted? Do they have high anxiety? Can they not take action because they have all of this stuff going on in their head? Are they in a very angry state, in a fight state, or are they in a flow state socializing? We usually want to be buffering between the top two, right? So being able to see, understand that the stimulus is the product that we want, not the exercise, right? And then from there, we can go towards the objective. Every athlete needs to perform. You cannot perform at your top percentile if you don't have safety or confidence. So no matter what, with any athlete, you build safety physically, mentally, and emotionally. Then you build confidence physically, mentally, and emotionally, and then they can perform whatever it is that they need to perform at their top level. And so that's that's really the key is it's a very simple guideline of understanding who the fuck cares what the exercise is. If we understand what the demand of the sport is or that performance is, who cares what exercise we're doing if we're bettering the performance? Meaning the performance is the ability to adhere to stress the best and to be able to coordinate and execute the best or most efficiently. Yeah. So who cares about the exercises? Yeah. Right? And and so like that was one of the things I was working with a with a a client that did Ironman and on paper data was perfect. Like times were perfect, aerobic capacity, lactic thresholds, all the tests that you could possibly do for data for this is exactly what I'm going to do in an Ironman was beautiful. You know what he didn't prepare for? Black waters at Big Bear Lake. So what happened? He jumped into the water. He's been swimming in pools and in nice, clear water. He jumped into a lake where it's black and you cannot see your hand as soon as you extend it out in front of you. And what happened? Boom. Heart rate shot up. Mm. Lactate level shot up. He froze. He could not adhere to that stress. It took him 30 minutes to be able to understand and calm himself rationally back down so he could start swimming again. So if we would have taken less time in looking at all that data, and imposed more stress while he was in the water, maybe that wouldn't have happened. It's the capacity to adhere to stress that gears better performance. It reminds me of what a recent podcast guest, Nick DeMarco, was just saying. Uh, he was talking about in preparation for American football, talking about the basically doing a uh, either a conditioning or a lot of field-specific stuff and monitoring psychological unease like if an athlete's struggling mm-hmm. to latch on to the tactics and and the techniques what and, and they're being uncomfortable because of that and that's impacting their ability to perform like like to have a mind for that in even if it's a non-specific se- uh, session even if it's like some sort of tempo training that's not you're not doing routes and things like that but looking at the tendencies for athletes to have an inability to perform the workout because of psychological variables and it reminds me a little bit of um I only heard about this, but it was uh, Marv Marinovich, who was a really, you you mentioned the contrarian, like I think Marv was a real contrarian in a lot of his methods. And I think it was when him and his brother were training, maybe it was BJ Penn or uh, another high-level fighter. They had him do, I think, all the the different elements of the, that would be in a fight. And I think they were trying to find the the skills that elicited the highest heart rate spike, like the stuff that maybe, maybe there is a physiological discomfort, but Probably with that, there might be a mental discomfort too. I think I think it'd be fair to say that if you're psychologically uncomfortable with something that's happening, that that could also elicit a heart rate spike. And so they would go for that. Hey, we're going to train this thing. And so it's interesting to think about the, like the black water, right? Like I w- I'd imagine that would be the thing. Like like all oh, the training's good, but you if because you didn't address this and the psychological demands of this, 
And that's where I think, you know, even with the exercises too, I do think, I think it's good to have a good, especially for me coming from a track and field background too, as well, a lot of specificity, exercise selection and transfer is important, but it is coaching that makes it come alive. Like I could hand that out like the best piece, it's a piece of paper. Hey, these are all very high transfer training, you know, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) That might not even mean anything to the athlete. Some athletes, it might mean a lot too. you know, some athletes, it might not mean as much too. you know, but Right. It, it it is the the environment that makes that piece of paper come alive, and I think that's right. the thing that I've like like how do I make sure this is coming alive fully? Because it's like if you don't if you don't have it, then it is just a piece of paper on some level, it, you know. And whether you right. do this exercise or that, but you don't have the environment and, and all the mental and emotional factors that are bringing it up, it's like well, how good? How much better is this really great training program than you know something else? It, it's it's a Definitely a fair question to ask. Yeah, and I think it, it it really comes down to you know I've worked with a few fighters and kickboxers here, and it's it's finding those gaps, right? Like if you don't know how to find those gaps in your athletes, when that comes up on the field, you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's nothing now. It's too late to prepare for it, and so you know whether whether those gaps are you know, my hamstring's going to pop because it's lacking neural output or mobility or lack of creating proper tension, whether that that gap is a psychological gap because I have social anxiety and, and, and you know, maybe performance anxiety of being in front of a crowd and being judged. Whatever these things are, there's ways that we can use training on the floor to elicit these stressors and to allow the body to feel stronger and confident to perform through these stressors. So that's that for me has been the biggest game changer with working with, you know, especially more towards like performers of, uh, you know, kickboxers, MMA fighters, is their skill is very good. Some of them are very good at zoning out because they know the skill and for them, strength and conditioning or, you know, their conditioning pieces aren't as important as learning the skills. But the, the, the strength and conditioning allows you to see the same, the same gaps or the same way you respond under a heavy or a hard strength and conditioning session is the same response that you'll respond under a very stressful meet a very stressful match, a very stressful fight, a very stressful life and situation in your real world. So the world doesn't take precedent to, oh my gosh, this is my sports stressor and this is my life stressor and I shouldn't stress it. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. stress is stress. It's coming in. There's stimulus coming in. Your body is trying to see how to best create a reaction towards it. And it's trying to make predictions as to how it needs to act best. So within training, you have this sort of safe environment where you can elicit a lot of stress and through movement and making sure that you're being present in that movement, we can allow you to change your behavior towards other stressful situations because now the body feels safe and confident. If the body feels safe and confident, the mind has a lot less to stress out about getting hurt or X, Y, and Z. Right. So there's 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 a there's a component there that is extremely powerful in strength and training where it's not necessarily about having the perfect program, but it's stressing your athlete enough to expose them a little bit more than they're used to so they can become safer, more confident and perform better. That's all it is, because at the end of the day, 
the athletes that are in these high-performing sports are very specific and they more than likely have built up very good skill. They're genetic freaks towards that sport, right? That sport-specific skill. What we need to do is make sure that their broader structural self is as strong as possible so that when the the need to perform at such a high level, uh, mentally, physically, and emotionally, right? When the When the stakes are extremely high, the chance of them getting injured or hurt or losing out mentally or getting psyched out mentally and performance going down becomes less and less and less and less. Yeah. So anytime that you're working with anybody, push them, but make sure that you're pushing them with low, low skill levels. That way they can't quit. If you can't quit and you decide to quit, it's the same thing that's going to happen when it gets hard and you have, and you're at the meet. If you decide to perform the same exact way and under any stress, right? And so any way for you to get stronger, there first comes boredom, then anxiety, then there's frustration, then there's anger at others, then there's anger at yourself. And then you learn your lesson or you evolve as a human. So I do the same thing for strength and conditioning. I push you to where you get anxious and therefore you want to know the sets, the reps, the range of motion, the pace, the numbers. Like, can I just, can I find a way to strategize to make this work so that I don't have to actually fully commit to it? Then there's a frustration because I'm going to push you to points where you're like, how did you even see that I was cheating it? Or how did you know that I was an autopilot? Or I'm going to throw random variables at you. So you're like, what the fuck? And then there's going to be anger at me because I'm going to push your buttons to make sure that you're really making, you're being present and pushing your, your limits to the, to the max. And then eventually you're going to get pissed off at yourself. And you're going to go, dude, if I just push hard and give my everything right now, I can give my everything on the meat. And I've just made you stronger. And I've made you be able to adhere to whatever comes your way. But if, you're, if your clients are quitting in any of these steps, it means that it's going to be the same thing that happens when they're going to any sort of you know testing of their training, right? Any sort of sport scenario. Yeah. I, I like that as you're talking about that, Richard, it makes me think about uh, like the more you could put life <laughs> life into training like because training is life you know and, and yeah. life does not unfold like all right i'm gonna make my plan and it's gonna all go just like this and i think there's always a lot of times in coaching there is a tendency to want to control and right. the beautiful thing about both life and coaching is once we kind of get outside of that a little bit, i mean obviously we have the structure of the session the athletes to go through but i think so t- so often it's so easy to want things to be so clear cut and when training is presented in a way that is more like life the dynamics of life i think that can be really powerful as you were talking to it made me think about i know i know you two were talking about your mountaineering accident and being you know short up yeah. and not being able to move there's another coach i i've had a lot of his um people who have learned from him a guy named jay schrader who was in a motorcycle accident and also had a similar experience I, there was a article about him and it might have been sports illustrated but basically i think he had to like mentally almost generate sensations of pain on his body just to get to move and like it it spent a lot of time in that internal place and he came up with a system that it almost reminds me that like a lot of long body weight holds with maintaining breathing patterns and posture and i talked to him one time and he had said that people who had and it's very hard and people he had said that people who go through the program he treats it very general he just looks at it as the general human being not specific but he was talking about people who become better like students as a result of that they their their right. whole life because you were got better in this microcosm of the walls of the gym like it because it mirrored things in life you know you you can now use that ability you gained and 
be better in life. I, and I was thinking too about the stages you're mentioning. And I was thinking about going through like a, like a five minute is, isometric lunge hold is like one of the standard hard things in that program. And I think about, yeah, I think yeah. I go through a few of those <laughs> motions. Yeah. Well, I'm going through sure. something like that. But usually we don't. Usually it's like warm up with these monster band walks, this kind of honestly easy stuff. Like, cause it's just, here's the script. Here's all these easy warm ups. Here's like three sets of 10 of this, this, this. Do it. Prepare. Like kind of like it's a car, like a check engine thing, you know, and then right. and then go do your squats, the thing that you like to do, you, you know, that most people. And if you don't like to do it, there's something wrong with it, you know, like, or whatever. That's typically right. how it's presented. So, I, I, I'm yeah, curious, your approach to the war, like maybe if, whatever you want to say with that or how you approach, you know, warming people up and, and ushering them into uh, a training or whatever you have, uh, would like to say. Yeah, I mean, that. you know, I, I think the, the biggest thing to understand, like the five minute lunge hold, right? you're having to face intensity. And so then the question becomes is, are you facing intensity or are you trying to endure intensity? Mm. So as humans, and this is always my, my conversation, is as humans, our objective is to survive and procreate, right? As, as evolutionary. Now we, now we have different, apparently different things that we're working on. But for the most part, our job is to survive and procreate. We're amazing survivors, amazing survivors. You know, motorcycle accidents, mountaineering accidents, uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, anything. We can go through a lot of hard shit and learn to adapt and survive. So when, when you're putting people through training sessions, how much of it, especially with good athletes, you know, but with regular people, like how much of it is actually being done by the athlete versus being survived by the athlete? Mm-hmm. So how many warm-ups can you think of, like in your case, for, for example, that you're doing a warm-up and you finish the warm-up and you still don't feel warm and you still don't want to be there because the entire warm-up, you were thinking of, shit, I have to go take the kids from school and then I have three meetings this afternoon and I have to do a podcast. Oh, fuck. I hope my wife's not mad at me because I didn't put the toilet seat down. And she's going to have to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? Before you know it, the, the, the warm-up's over and you haven't been present in the gym whatsoever. Right. And that maybe that's not your case for a general population. That's a big mm-hmm. case. Right. For a lot of athletes, that's a big case because they're like, oh, what the warm up? I just want to go do the, the skill stuff and the fun things. And mm-hmm. I wait for that to be more present. But a lot of us can zone out and survive a lot of these things. So for me, it's like, okay, so if you're not present, are you even doing work? Like the body just going on autopilot. Are, are there changes being made in this warm up? I don't think so. Right. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it. It's, it's, you know, for me, it's always my question of if you're doing bench press, but you don't feel your chest, you don't feel the pecs getting a pump, are you doing bench press? No, you're doing something else, right? So it's being able to understand as a coach, being able to understand what stimulus we want from our clients or our athletes. And then the other one is understanding what it takes to get that stimulus, Right. So if I have somebody like, you know, you're talking about sprint and track and field, if I have clients or or athletes that would be sprinters and they don't know how to feel their hamstrings, but yet they're sprinting, I'm seeing a lack of performance. I'm seeing a big gap there, right? If I'm looking at my fighters and they have shoulder pain, I'm seeing a major lack of performance. Now, could they do floor bench press, floor press, back squats, anything you ask them to do? Absolutely. They're athletes. Athletes are the worst because they want to show you that you they can complete any task possible, right? 
So the definition of being fit, the capacity to complete the task or the capacity to, you know, complete the objective, right? So athletes are amazing at surviving anything to prove you that they can do anything that you ask them to do. They would break before they, before they say that, you know, they show you that they can't do something. And so for your job as a coach, it's like, okay, first of all, that's when you're out in the field. So when you're out in the track meet or, you know, you're at states or nationals or this or that, and you want to test it and break, fuck yeah, that's when you break. But right now we're training. I'm trying to get you strong so that when you're out there, you have the least chance of breaking and you can actually compete at a much higher level, right? So for me, warm-ups are very simple. They're up-regulators. They're a way for you to become present. They're a way for us to get true blood flow and awareness of our more efferent or structural muscles. So sternocostal pecs, uh, transfers of dominus, uh, obliques, psoas major, glute max, inside head of the hamstring, uh, gastroc soleus, so on and so forth, right? So I'm trying to get awareness and blood flow into these muscles, higher neural connection to these muscles, so that we can then create better muscle quality, better muscle quantity, and then we can apply it to the skill. So depending on the stimulus that I want from a client will depend on how much I want to ramp them up on a warm-up and then how much I'm going to be kind of dissociating them and cooling them down and down-regulating them after the workout. But so for me, the goal is always the exercise is the byproduct. What I'm really looking for is that center part is the stimulus. What kind of stimulus do we want from our clients or our, or our, our, our athletes? Um, and that's, that's uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, it sounds a lot more simple than it is to, to obtain because you have to, in order for you to achieve the proper stimulus, you have to be connected to that person. You have to understand if they're having a stressful day, then we need to approach the warm-up differently than if they're having a super happy day. And if they're super sad, then we need to approach the warm-up differently. And so if you're running a class for track athletes and you have a quarter of the class that is super anxious and stressed out because they don't like to perform in front of others, whatever it may be, you have the other clients that are super sad, like the story that you gave at the beginning of the podcast. You have one client that's just fucking ready to kill it and gung-ho because, you know, the meet's next week and he just he, he thinks that he can PR this week as well. And, you know, you're dealing with a lot of different people. So that's why coaching is so taxing because you're having to deal with all these people and you need to properly guide them through the right stimulus so that they can have safety, confidence, and then perform whenever it's needed. I wanted to take a quick minute to tell you about my story with our sponsor, Lost Empire Herbs. Several years ago, I had strongman and mental training expert Logan Christopher on the show. And in the interview, I realized that Logan, in addition to deadlifting over 500 pounds and ripping phone books in half, also was the founder of an herbalism company. Long story short, I ended up ordering the Phoenix Formula, one of their flagship products. And in taking that, I noticed increased energy and a decreased reliance on coffee, which honestly, I was kind of expecting that. But what I didn't expect is after a few weeks, I noticed my weight room numbers had increased substantially. And the Phoenix formula also led me to getting Shiljit resin, which is found in the Phoenix formula and recommended by a lot of strength coaches, as well as other Lost Empire Herbs products. I've been using Lost Empire Herbs ever since, and I have sponsors of the show that I believe in, that I use, and that I want to share with you. So if you want to check them out, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off my favorite Lost Empire Herbs products 
you get a 365-day money-back guarantee. I really enjoy having Lost Empire Herbs as a sponsor of this show, and I hope you get a chance to check out what they have to offer. Let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, so with like a group that would come in, I, you know, you've talked in the past about how you use music for that, and I, I love, by mm-hmm. the way, the like stimulus. I, I wrote it down: stimulus over exercise. Like, because I think we—it's yeah. so common to just think exercise first, and then you go to the textbook. You're like, wait, what stimulus did that? Versus, like, right? I've I've had workouts where I've, especially now compared to let's say, I'm like you know, 15 years ago where I know that I'm getting a good workout, not because of I counted up all the um, the mechanical stressors to the muscle. You know, I counted up every stride, every distance, but it's like I overarchingly kept this feeling and this rhythm and this training made me happy, you know, and, right. and that yeah. I will adapt better to that than, I don't know, let's just say like, for example, like I like going, if I do, I used to, and I still do like, you know, go run tempo sprints like eight by 200 meters on 30 seconds with three minutes rest or something pretty standard like tempo workout for track or other sports too but i will and that's it's a good workout but it's interesting because i'll do these days i'll go run in like the creek and i'll bound rock to rock and i'll have music in my headphones and sometimes the rhythm of the music will come out and how i'm bounding and then i'll go do a few trail sprints and i'll do cycles of that and there's always there's this like it's all under a constant rhythm and this the emotional state is always connected i'm not thinking about my day or my work or or anything else it's like because you're constantly in it and i the day after those trainings my body is like alive and i don't know i don't think i could necessarily tell you all the little you know stressors like the micro stressors and and muscle tensionings that necessarily made the difference but i can tell you and i think there's some you know there's variability and all that stuff but i can tell you that how i was able to stay in a flow state and was connected emotionally to what I was doing made a really, really big difference. And it's almost like sometimes the body responds out of the emotion too. It's like you put the emotion in and what you get out, even from like a technical perspective, the the technique, the the power the body is able to output. That's what I'm getting into now. It's like how how watching someone run is almost a product of especially distance. I feel like sprinting is a little bit different, but like if you just watch a distance runner running down the street, like you what, what emotions you are they can tell a whole yeah lot. oh yeah yeah or anyway not <laughs> Most distance, of them are just anybody. suffering yeah. yeah oh yeah watch the local half marathon if you want to see the suffering yeah oh, <laughs> there's not a lot of miserable. happy not a lot of happy faces <laughs> that's for sure yeah and you said it just right so it's you know you for me it's i need to bypass the cognitive or the me- the mental side right so when we're constantly in this analytical side you can never truly act you know, and, and when you look at, you know, and I'm sure that if you take this back to when you were a kid and you were, you know, starting to do track and field or your sport, the best part was just playing the game, like just having fun. That's where the massive learning curve happened. Like, you know, you have kids, I have kids, like, when does the learning curve happen? Not when they're being forced to memorize positions or, you know, letters, but when you're just having a conversation with them and they're playing, like I watch, I love watching my son, he's almost two and the dude just, he loves to destroy things to put them back together. <laughs> and I'm like, he's going to break things. But he actually does, he's so meticulous about taking things apart and trying to figure out how to put them back together. That's the learning curve, right? There is mental cognition, yes, but it's not, an, it's not again, it's not the regurgitation of information, right? It's no longer information once he gets it back together. Then it's knowledge. And it's the same thing with the sport. So, 
we have this hierarchy of the nervous system where if you stop trying to be creative at your sport and you only focus on the objective means, you're no longer getting better, right? And so this is something that I saw massively with endurance athletes. So talking about half marathons, they're so worried about their times that they mentally get stuck on objectively reaching these times. So trying to fix the stride and trying to do this and trying to do that is no longer enjoyable because the stress of objectively getting the time is way more important. So what started off as a, wow, I really enjoyed, like I felt happy running down the street and having a good time. And I'm going to sign up for my first half marathon. And wow, I'm a pretty good runner. I could probably take this thing to the next level. And holy shit, I did have my first half marathon. Let's go try the second one. And let's go for a full one. And now I need a coach because now I'm getting good, but my times are starting to stall. So how do I get better? I'm going to get a coach. Maybe I need faster shoes. Maybe I need this. Maybe I need that. It starts to go towards everything. And yet we don't go back to understanding that we need to keep learning the craft of running. So anxiety goes up and now everything becomes analytical and everything becomes mental. The physical side is gone because you can run and keep pace and do everything. So we're not pushing the physical side anymore because we're working only on one part of the physical part which is would be like aerobic capacity. Where's the anaerobic capacity? Where's the strength and conditioning? If we actually were to get that a little bit better, and we've proven that we have a gym here in Belgium where we started adding, you know, these sled sprint sessions and these heavy sandbag workouts and, you know, pushing and actually strengthening, creating better neural output of the muscles, so better connection to the muscles, and these people started breaking records again. But we start to get so focused on developing skill and not evolving as human. So my job is always, I'm going to get you structurally stronger, right? And again, going back, structurally stronger physically, mentally, and emotionally, because I know that if I get you structurally stronger, you can adapt better to stress, you can learn faster, you can perform better, because I'm creating safety, confidence, and allowing you to perform more. Right. So it goes back to those same three things. I know I keep bringing it over and over again, but it's something that is so simple that can become very complex. And what you start to see is people will start to focus more and more and more on a skill. A skill can never translate over to more structural strength or more structural endurance. But structural endurance and strength can always transfer towards better or an easier way to adapt to that skill. Right. So we, we, talked about sandbags. I know you talked with sandbags on the last podcast with Julian. We had a, a booth at a, at a show and I had a guy that could deadlift 780 pounds and he could not pick up a 220 pound sandbag. So it shows you how sports specific he'd gone into the skill of developing the barbell deadlift. He wasn't really strong because if his buddy is 255, 50 pounds and they go out partying and he passes out on the street, he can't pick him up. That's not being all that strong. You're very sports-specific strong, right? But that skill isn't transferring over to anything else in life. And so I think that that's when you start to obsess over the skill rather than truly evolving your craft of the sport. And that's where you do need some data point, but that needs to be balanced out with intuition and with presence and curiosity and creativity. And, you know, you whenever you talk to any amazing athlete, you know, for me, Mike Tyson is, you know, the epitome of boxing, right? I mean, that dude's just at the top. Yeah. And and I love it because 
he gets so emotional when he talks about mm. his craft. He's like, my craft is my craft of of being a warrior. Like I'm here to learn how to just, you know, basically decapitate people. Like I studied all the warriors. Like the guy has never stopped the curiosity of becoming a better fighter. None of it. I mean, I'm sure there was some data in the background, but it was all about understanding his history, understanding how the sport got to where it is today, understanding the greats of his era, what they were good at, what they were bad at, working on his discipline. It was all driven by him evolving his craft as a boxer, never developing the skill as a boxer, right? The skill comes with the evolution. The evolution doesn't come with the skill. Mm. That's a big difference to make as a, as a performance athlete. Yeah, I I would love to break that down in how you said physical, mental, and emotional because I feel like, you know, that that is life. And I think yeah. the common coaching trend is to make things, as I'm understanding it, like only physical and mental. And mental kind of being do the skills. Here's all the skills and the technical work and physical, you know, here's the volumes and loads and we take out the emotional. But I think we never yeah. really define it though. I think because things never get defined, that also leads to them just kind of getting cast to the wayside a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, we, for me, I always, I explain it in a few different ways. The best one that I've, that I've seen people kind of grasp onto is every time you go train or you go to an event or you do something, we can give a hundred percent. I know we all want to give 110%. We give a hundred percent and that hundred percent, you have percentages that go towards physical aspects, mental aspects, and emotional aspects. If I were to be doing a pure physical I mean, not pure physical, but if, you know, on a more physical strength type thing would be more of a, you know, we're going to be doing a deadlift in in a powerlifting competition. Um, If there's any CrossFitters out there, you know, if you're doing Fran, if you're testing your fitness, you want enough coordination from the brain, but everything else is purely physical. Like your brain cannot get in the way of my lungs are burning. I need to slow down of this, 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 this. So that's why we train so hard. So when we test our fitness, like, bro, everything is on the line. Like, I don't care if you puke, if you pass out, if you, whatever you have to do, finish the race and win. It's a purely physical part of training. And so for that, I love using sleds or low skill exercises because your mind will always quit before your body. And so if I use a very low skill exercise, I can push the intensity and then you're going to quit before your body does. And I'm going to be like, well, why did you quit? You know, especially with like high end athletes, I'll put a timer on and I'll make sure that you quit or that you fail. And I'm going to teach you how to deal with failure and with quitting without you even noting. Hmm. Right. And then you're like, holy shit. And now that's how I'm going to make you stronger. (laughs) A mental standpoint is what you're seeing quite a bit. Right. So you're going to run this split time, you know, when I'm working with, with fighters, it's like, okay, so how are we going to coordinate? So how do you bring yourself back to center? How do you actually start to strategize the fight in these five minutes? So how much can you truly give? So first, we understand how much your capacity is at 100% physically. And then from there, it's like, how can we spread that over five minutes? So then you know when to go on offense, when to go on defense, right? You start to strategize a lot more. So something like that would be, and again, this could be done. It doesn't need to be on the weightlifting side, but it's like, you know, we're going to be doing a great mental one is, uh, you know, the beep test, the 20, the seven second beep test or 20 meter beep test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You start on your stomach and you do two burpees every time you hear the beep and you lay on your stomach. Okay. So you need to strategize because the first, 
yeah, like the first few rounds, you can kind of, you know, strategize to go a little bit slower and then you need to pick up and then you need to keep pace. Another one would be like, okay, we're going to do, you know, five sets of 50 or 30 kettlebell swings, but they need to be done unbroken. So if you get to rep 29 and you decide to quit, it's a mental quit because you could do one more, mm -hmm. right? Or you could have done five more. So you need to decide when you walk up to that kettlebell and when you start the kettlebell swing. But once you start, you cannot stop. So now you're creating mental fortitude, right? And then the emotional one, you know, for me is always the intent. And, and you know, they come in a, in a variation of ways. CrossFit has done a great thing called Memorial Day Murph. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a workout. It's a, called a hero workout. So it's a fallen soldier. And basically on Memorial Day, everybody gets together and they do this workout. It's one mile run, 300 squats, 200 pushups, 100 pull-ups, one mile run. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of volume. Is it physically demanding? Yeah, but could you modify it? Could you change it? Could you walk the mile? Nobody says that you have to run it at your five-minute pace or whatever, right? So everybody can finish this workout. There's no reason that you can't. There's not a lot of skill level involved, right? You're sitting on a chair and standing up. You can do push-ups up against the wall. If you need to, you can do jumping pull-ups or ring rows. The variations doesn't matter. The, the, the point of it is that every day during Memorial Day, we all get together and, you know, at, at CrossFit Boxes, if you guys haven't experienced it, I, you know, it's, it's a great community builder, but it just, it shows you how emotional a workout can get. And they go over, you know, they commemorate all the veterans. And usually there's some veterans that are in the crowd in the community. They give the story and it's, it's this entire buildup of why you're going to do the workout. And so it becomes emotional because you're, you're struggling halfway through. I mean, every time that I would do it, I had my CrossFit gym. Every time I do it, I would be crying before the workout because I just, you have the veterans there and you're like trying to talk about it. Like it makes me emotional now, right? Like you just start to feel like the, the lump in your throat. Um, so that's the emotional part. The emotional part can also be, you know, I have philosophy towards movements and I, I've mapped out different behavioral traits and traumas and emotions in the muscles. But, you know, if I, if you're approaching a back squat versus a 2K row, are you going to approach them the same? Outside of them being different energy, different requirements of energy level and expenditure, are you going to approach them the same mentally? No, right? So a one rep max back squat, for anybody that's ever gone truly heavy on a one rep max back squat, it's a war, right? Like it's, I always call it like it's a, it's strict, it's a street gang warfare. Like the barbell wants to fuck you up and it wants to smash you to the ground. It wants to break your spine. Like it really does. Like it has no mercy, it has no emotions, it's ruthless, and it's going to do whatever it can to just basically smash you down to the ground. So if you go into that back squat, happy-go-lucky, it's not going to work, you know? And you can go watch any video of anybody squatting heavy. There is not a smile in the room. Like the face is very <laughs> serious and it's, I'm going to fucking dominate you. Like I'm going to destroy you, Barbara. Like there is no way you're pinning me down to the ground, right? When you go to 2K and, you know, for some performers out there like 2ks or anybody's done an all-out effort 2k row it's miserable right or for you be like a 400 meter run it's miserable it's 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 taxing it's it's horrible but there's a strategy to it it's a fight it's a dance you know that on the straightaway you go faster on the you know on the bench you slow down on the 2k row you're kind of finding your pace like it's it's a little bit of a dance there's a little bit more mental side to it but emotionally speaking you're fighting against this rowing machine, but almost being 
submissive to the rowing machine because you have to find the cadence. And so you're emotionally kind of in this strategy of, I'm going to mess you up, but I need you, I need to work mm-hmm. with you at the same time. Otherwise, it's all going downhill, right? So these emotional standpoints, you know, come from a variation of things. There's workouts. I do some workouts for, to help people with anxiety, mental depression, trauma, PTSD. And again, as I mentioned earlier, like the five five steps to learn a lesson or to change your 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 perception on the external world, it doesn't come without the emotional expression. So that emotional expression could come in tears, could come in anger, could come in happiness, could come in sadness. You know, there's there's a, a, a wide array of emotions that could be coming through it. But as I mentioned, you understand you're having a great emotional workout because you're just flowing. Like it's yeah. just, it's going, you know, whether it's aggressive, whether it's happy, whether it's submissive, whether it's dominant, you're in it. And that's the that's the ultimate goal, maybe not all the time. But that's the ultimate goal to change your perception on outside stressors and to better performance. You need that aspect of the emotional part of training, that auto-regulation, right? And I feel that the strength and conditioning world and the performance world is starting to change to understand that we need a lot more of this for mental health and it's breaking a lot less people. But I still feel that it's very much in this data-driven world where we tend to disconnect from how are you feeling today, right? And again, I think there's a lot of amazing coaches are like, hey, maybe today is not that five by five backwater. Maybe today is not that, you know, 200 meter repeats. Maybe today is just like, a, let's go walk around the track and maybe get a couple of jogs in. You know, that, that intuition of a coach is what makes you a great coach because you're emotionally invested and connected with your client. Yeah. With the, going through the physical, mental, and emotional, I am curious uh, of your thoughts. Like, I think of a lot about like pickup basketball as well. And and but you said there's there's so many good things in there that I have follow ups with. But but this is one of the things that I think, at least from a performance perspective, uh, and sport is one of the things that I've thought about a lot, talked about a lot on this show is like using pickup basketball. A lot of people who, if you want to jump as high as you can. People will talk about pickup basketball. All my clients, like through the years too, if they're like, I was trying to dunk and I did my best dunks, it's always after pickup basketball. There is no warm up that I can contrive only because it that that can rival that. And and I've tried. Right. And and the more I do, I bring in like music, like partner games that aren't basketball. Like there has to be other humans or music or emotion for it to be as good as basketball, basically. <laughs> like I can't right. I can't make it as good as that without injecting some uh, um, their emotional level into it so i i'm just curious like what would you you know i know most of your experiences and more like and references are more in the world of like like uh, crossfit type activities but i'm curious like in, in sport or rock climbing maybe or stuff that's more like sport and like how would you classify basketball or rock climbing or, or or just sport on those levels like just because i'm always looking at that side of things too and, and then drawing those lines between the training and then the sport itself Yeah, I mean, so I did some rock climbing and mountaineering, and there's physical components to it, right? But you know, whenever you talk to a great rock climber, again, it goes back to the same principle. It's when when you're in that low state, it's when it's going to work the best. So what allowed what what the pickup basketball games allowed you to dunk the best and to jump the best is that you weren't having to think; you were just able to do right. And so that's that's one of the biggest cues that I always have with my clients. It's like if you're analyzing, you're not acting. 
just act. You, your body knows what it wants to do. Just let it do its thing. And, and we, we don't need to go so much into the mindset, into this, into that. We just need to be in a fucking great environment. The environment will gear the results, right? The stimulus. So when it comes to, you know, depending on the sport is you need to set the right tone for what you're going to do. And the best way to set the tone is to bypass the mental analytical side, unless you're doing skill days, to allow you the body to do what it's going to do best, right? So pickup games of basketball is great because you're not having to think so much and you're just having to play, but there's random variables. You don't know the people that are going to be there. So you're like, oh shit, like, you know what I mean? So you don't know, you're still, you, what does that do? Is it, again, it brings out the creative side of you. It doesn't mm-hmm. allow you to go through the drills passively. You have to actively be there because there's new people. You don't know what's going on. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't read this court anymore. So that's why I love random variables for warmups. Yeah. So, you know, we talked, about, I don't know if I talked about it yet, but with you before the podcast about the songs, right? So for me, warm-up songs are amazing. So take any song and, you know, don't stick to the same one over and over again because then it becomes passive again. But take take any song that has a repetitive phrase and start to listen to it and hold an isometric. And every time you hear the word, you do a concentric exercise or, mm. you know, you do whatever exercise you want to do. What it forces you to do it, it's forcing you to stay present. You can't zone out and be thinking about the kids or this or that because you have to be listening to the lyrics to understand when to perform the rep. So that's the first state of it. It's forcing mental presence. Secondly, the isometric holds, you know, like whether it's in the at the bottom of the lunge position, like you were talking about before, wherever it is, it's going to force an isometric contraction. Isometric contractions provide an extreme high intensity that you could never, you'll never fail. You'll always quit. Mm. So you can hold here and squeeze your pec for as long as you can. You're not going to rupture your pec. It's not going to just pop. It's in a safe space, so it has the confidence to move, so therefore it can perform. So what's going to quit? The mind, because it can't tolerate the intensity that the muscle is creating in that isometric contraction. So you start to quit. So that's exposure therapy for the neural output to get higher, for the muscle quality and quality to get better, for it to transfer to other skills. And you're having to hold this for four to five minutes, depending on the songs that you're choosing. So it's, it's a massive isometric learning and being able to explore, you know, if you have the right the right guidelines, you're able to ask for certain things of your clients, but it's forcing them to take active action, being present in the moment, rather than just passively moving through the skills and not learning anything from them. So if you're doing basketball, pick up basketball games is great. If you're rock climbing, I don't know, I haven't dealt with many rock climbers as far as like, you know, you could do like warm-up songs and they can only do one move at a time or you could do, you know, just start having fun, like, you know, playing games at the beginning, like we're kids at the end of it, right? Yeah. Like that, that, that's a, again, why we probably got into the sport to begin with, because it was fun. Make it fun again, have fun, make, make games in your tracks and in, in, in the, in the track meets and make games before you get to the serious stuff, right? It's, it's, a, it's the same principle with everything that we do in life. It starts off as games, Right. And there's that excitation, and then there's the foreplay, and then there's the climax, the meet, the competition, the developing of the skill, the fight, whatever it may be. But at the beginning, the warm-up for any sport should be socialization, first Mm -hmm. and foremost, so proper 
environment that feels safe so we can actually be expressed. And then the second one is being active and present while creating high amounts of blood flow to the bigger structural muscles. However you want to achieve that, for exercise is a byproduct, right? But if we can have higher dosages of blood flow to the bigger structural muscles, the body will feel much safer to go to the end ranges. Mm. Rather than spending 30 minutes mashing away at small muscles that are sending signals to your brain telling you that you shouldn't be moving in this way because it doesn't feel neurologically safe, we should be spending time creating blood flow to the bigger muscles that are supposed to be doing the work so they can feel safe to perform. Yeah, I like that. I look at like even basketball too, it, amongst all the other things. I like how you said to pick up like when there's p- other people you don't know, you're kind of like, oh, are they, are they good? Are they this type of player? Are they da, da, da. I go back to those days and I haven't played pickup in about two years, but that does add an element to it. Because if you're playing with your buddies in the same old way, like it, it is still fun, but it's not, it's not quite the same. Like it's, so right. I, it's cool that you mentioned that because I, I think that was a, a factor in it. But I do think, yeah, like, I know like the blood flow and muscle temperature, it's, there's studies that show that every degree of temperature you get increased output. But I also think about, yeah, like, well, also the body also is feeling if you're giving, uh, it was Kyle Waugh who's been on this podcast, he's talked about just having his own clients before I think he gets in the nitty gritty of, you know, biomechanical problems, just getting them on the assault bike and getting some blood flow going. And some of those problems you thought you had, it's got to go away, you know, over time, like just doing something yeah. simple like that. And I think yeah. about, you, you mentioned it, it is so true. Like so often a workout is designed with basically a very mechanical robotic foreplay, do this movement prep, three sets of 10, and then go right to the climax, heavy squat. You know, there's not, there is right. not this almost never or rarely like a buildup, like, like with music, like you are just starting with socialization. Then there's like music or rhythm or things that, that take you out of your head too. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, right. And I'm, I'm curious too, I, I think you've talked about this on other podcasts, but at, along with the lunge example too, at, like, and I think that's so cool too. I did do this one workout one time with Pat Coyne, who's been on the show where we did like held a lunge and then Tool was playing. And then every time the beat like hit, we would do a lunge jump and there's something like that. Oof, it was that awesome. Oh, it, was, it, was, <laughs> it was, it was tough, but it was, it was awesome. And you, you had mentioned like using like sandbags a lot in your warmth, like presses and trying to get certain muscles active. I'd yeah. love for you to like just a- any group, like it doesn't have to be related to any sport, but just a group coming in. Could you take me a little bit through how you're approaching the people in the group, how you're deciding to select uh, what warm up to use and how you're escalating things up towards more of a, a higher intensity, the higher intensity mode of the day? Yeah. So, I mean, any group that comes in, the first thing that I do, depending how well I know the group, right, will be to find gaps. So understand where the group's coming from, kind of where they stand for the day. So does everybody seem? The goal is, you know, as I mentioned, the phylogenetic hierarchy, you have the flow, fight, flight, freeze. My goal is to get everybody into a flow state, into a socialized state first. Because if you're doing a workout or any warm up or anything, and you have one person that's completely stressed out, one person's depressed or extremely sad, one person's angry, and one person just smoked a joint as happy as all can be, and they all do the same workout, they don't have the same stimulus. They don't have the same results. They don't have the same experience. So my job is to ensure that they are all in the same state first. And so that's why socialization is important. 
So for me, it's, I'll always do my favorite thing to do is a, a 400 meter sandbag carry or a 400 meter walk or carry with an odd object. So it could be a kettlebell, a dumbbell, a sandbag, anything that you need to carry in between your hands. You can't rest it on the shoulder. So it needs to be carried on the hands or against the belly. And you're going to go with a partner and you're going to walk 400 meters. And the goal here is to get to know your partner. You know, do they like walks on the beach? Do they like <laughs> wine? Do they like whiskey? What kind of music do they listen to? Why are they here? Uh, what do they want out of today? What do you want out of today? And if you start to feel stressed out, you hand the bag over, the object over to your partner, and then you guys can have a conversation. And so this is a great way to have people that don't know each other, especially like you said, like the pickup basketball game, like, holy fuck, who am I playing against? It's a, it's a meet and greet. We get to know each other. We get to see the community that we're all going to be a part of for the next hour, two hours, few weeks, few months, whatever it may be. And so this gets everybody nice and cozy and kind of talking together and socializing. And then from there, I'm not very nice. So we kind of start to jump into, depending on whatever the workout is, is creating awareness of the proper muscles. So that would be transverse abdominis, oblique, psoas major, glute max, pec major, and lats, right? So more of the trunk and, and big structural muscles. And so I'll usually do that with a low skill set, real world object workout or warm up, but like through a song, I like the songs because I can see, you know, we have limited time with the clients. So if I have five minutes of a song, I can see 15, 20 people because they're going to have to be holding in this position for five minutes. So if there's a displacement of tension of going to the neck rather than the pecs. If there's a zone out mentally, or, you know, you kind of see them zonking out and not listening to the song, that means that they're not present. So I can see a whole lot of what that client is doing in the group setting. And if they're going to need any modifications for the workout, whatever the workout is. And so for me, I'll do two or three songs, or maybe I'll do like two songs and then something else afterwards. But basically, if I do two songs, that's eight minutes plus the walk, that's 11, 12 minutes. And the body has massive amount of blood flow. We've created a safe environment. People are able to socialize and team up. You know, we have blood flow and awareness of the bigger structural muscles. And now we can actually start to work towards a skill whatever that skill may be for the day, uh, depending on the sport. And then, yeah, we go through the workout, which is usually like the climax of it. And based on what I want out of them, usually when I'm working with clients, most of the time we, we tend to have a lack there of going into intensity or full fight. And so, you know, we'll do something short, aggressive, and mean. And I put guidelines like, you know, guys, this is not about, you know, we're not walking the dog down the beach. We're not playing with our kids. We're not strategizing to win a chess match. This is a sub three minute workout. We're going to go very, very hard. Everybody feels warmed up. If somebody doesn't finish under three minutes, or if I catch somebody that finishes like, wow, that was hard, but still is not on the ground. Like the only way that you can get out of this is you're mm. puking your guts out or you're on the floor convulsing. Let's put mm. it that way, right? For a pure physical, like high intensity workout. And everybody's like, holy shit. But I set the present, right? I set the experience up. You know what you're going to go in for. It's a dogfight. Like we're going to go hard, right? And then the cool down will be much longer. We'll do some stretching. We'll kind of come back to society. We'll basically go into a full collapse because the body is just destroyed. Going like, what the hell did we just go through? And then I allow them to stretch a little bit, go for a walk, come back. We do 10 minutes of full dissociation with what I call Swami. They can truly get in touch with themselves and connect with themselves. And then we just have a conversation back and forth with the person that you went out on the walk with. And we can just kind of start to talk about what's going on, right? And music plays a big role. It can set moods. 
So, you know, if, if I'm doing heavy days and aggressive days like this that I just mentioned, yeah, they'll probably be, I'm not a, I am a tool fan. I, I don't want to piss people <laughs> off. I'm not a heavy metal fan, but I do like tool out of all the heavy metal stuff and, and kind of rocker stuff. But I'll put on some gangster rap or I'll put on some, you know, hardcore techno or whatever. It's going to kind of set the mood. And it's more based on my clients that are there versus me because it's about them. I'm providing a service. You know, if we're doing something that does need to be like a chess match. So like I'll do a workout where it's like, hey, guys, you're going to be doing your 100 meter sprints. And if you know who your clients are, you know, you're, you need to get sub this on your sprints. Otherwise, don't run it right? Mm. But then you're going to have two minutes to rest and you're going to be doing whether it's burpees or you're going to do this, this, and this, but it needs to be done unbroken. So you mentally need to understand when you can go all out effort. Because sometimes in the meets, you you should be able to plan that stuff out. You know when your races are going to be, you need to be mentally prepared for this. It cannot grab you by shocker, right? And then depending on who your clients are, I'm a, I'm a lovable asshole is what my, my wife calls me because I'm very passionate about what I do. I'll throw wrenches in it. Right. So I'll be like, time's up, go. And they're like, <clears throat> and then it freaks them out <laughs> yeah. and they get pissed off. So, like, one of my best stories is I was training a guy that was going to the CrossFit games and we were doing a workout and I was, I was counting his reps and I would no rep him, right? With it, which a CrossFit means it doesn't count. Mm-hmm. You need to repeat it. And I was just like, every three or four, I'd be like, no rep, no rep, no rep, six, no rep, no rep, to the point where he just got so pissed off. He almost wanted to punch me. And I was like, Bro, if you do this at the games, you've already lost like seven reps to the guy next to you. Like you're falling behind. You can't mentally quit on me, right? And so again, I'm provoking the emotional expression by pushing the the mental and physical buttons. So you're always able to play around with this stuff. And 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 music, going back to music, putting a vibe, you know, play around with different music. I love when I'm doing a lot more of that skill set or that mental type workouts. I'll do a binaural beats focus. Oh yeah. And they'll and I'll just play that stuff over, and you'll see that mm. people won't even realize that there's music on, but they'll be able to adapt a lot better to coordination, skill sets, coordination, building up of of timings, and so on and so forth. So, you know, you can always pick around different things. If it's more upper body work, I usually go more towards like Latin music and you know, kind of more more beat, but lovable songs and you know, kind of hip and and grind and music because it's all much better that way <laughs> just <laughs> I, from my experience <laughs> I, I get it i get it you mentioned tool at the metal I actually don't it is funny i used to listen to stuff that i think in my early 30s late 20s that was a lot more like gangster rap or like harder rock like more stuff that had more anger in it these days it's almost yeah. all bpm like like stuff like I that's kind of where the world's gone right <laughs> <laughs> i guess i don't know it's it is funny because i sometimes i think when i am lifting heavier i'm like what do i i don't necessarily often feel like even changing the bpm stuff i don't know maybe it's just maybe emotionally i'm approaching it from a different perspective and it's an interesting thing like if you're out there training by yourself like you know you're in a good flow when you don't realize the music is there but you're like fuck this is good you know what i mean like it's not distracting you but it's adding to the experience that's when you know it's good like that's how i know for me like neurologically like where i am based on when i'm listening to music and i'm at the gym if I'm trying to find like the right song or I'm skipping through songs in between sets or things like mm-hmm, that, yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm not even here. So I need to figure something else out. And I'll usually just go either for a longer walk or something to like kind of mm-hmm. ground myself. But you know, when you have like that good music and you're, as everything's flowing, then you know that you're there and that's when you can really start to push the intensity or, or add the skill set or, you know, go explore and, 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 and have some creativity time with your skill. 
Yeah. You said um, the binaural, I had written this down. Was that, and the mental is like the strate- the strategizing, like I'm, I'm making notes as yeah. I'm going, like mental is strategize. Because I think of things that like, like humans like to do, which is strategize and, you know, and, and work hard, but you know, the emotional, we tend to kind of brush under. But you were saying right. that the, you, the, the binaural for you fits more. Binaural more, beats. Are more mental. The, that fits more with the mental. It's on the type. mental side. Okay. Um, and you can use it if, if people go on my YouTube channel and go for the, the Swami sessions where they want to get more on the, it's mental and then emotional. It allows the mind to quiet down a lot more. So okay. for it's more mental and then you can use it a little bit towards the emotional stuff as well, depending on how you want to apply it. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that working well with like the long isometric holds actually. I, I don't know. I'll, yeah. do, I'll, I'll be trying that that shortly. Because to me too, it's like like you just said, I think a lot of times if it's just songs, sometimes it's like, oh, well, I got to lift heavy. Well, I want this song to be on, you know? And I feel like every time you start to do that, that, I don't know, like that, like I've heard people say it, talk about that could be a negative. Oh, I got to, I, I got to have my song on for this. And right. I think that, I don't know, there's probably some vibe. It's a sabotage though, yeah. right? It's, it's a, it's a, whenever I see that, the person is not aligned physically, mentally, and emotionally to do the, the task. So they're trying mm-hmm. to prolong doing the task. Ah, uh, yeah. They don't want to, the body's trying, probably trying to scream to them and they just don't want to listen. So that's, that's one of the biggest things when I'm working with some of these clients, I'm like, no, you're not doing it again. And then they go do it again. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was bad. I was like, yeah, because like, you knew you didn't want to do it to begin with. Like, who are you trying to punish here? Right? And so it's, it's, it's always a, a necessity for auto-regulation that allows you to be active about what you're doing. But when you're just starting, when you're trying to find things to prolong doing the task, it's a, you're surviving the situation. You're not doing mm, and growing yeah. from the situation, right? Now, obviously... If you're, you're like, oh, I need to find my song. Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to go. Oh, I was going to go run, but I can't find my headphones. I'm not going to go. Mm-hmm. And then every single day there's an excuse. Okay, at that point it's like, come on, bro. Let's get to work. You know, but, but, but there are times where your body is trying to tell you not to do something. And that's where we should have options. So rather than having a perfect program, we have guidelines or a structure to the program. And then we can kind of make up what needs to be done on the day-to-day basis on how you're feeling, how you woke up, how you slept, how you recovered, what's going on in life. What do you have going on in the afternoon or what do you have going on in the morning? Or, you know what I mean? Like if you're going home at night and you're so crashed from your training session and you can't be with your kids and play and socialize and that's the only time you have with them, is that really what you want? Like what's at the end of that rainbow, right? So maybe that training session needs to be a little bit different. Right. If you're training in the morning and you have to go do a high stress job and you're trying to give everything you can and now you're like destroyed for the rest of the day, what are you trying to accomplish? So we should be finishing the workout, having you feeling energized to go do your work for the day and then go home and socialize. And that's part of the auto regulation and the education process that we need to have with with our clients and with ourselves. Yeah. Richard, you had mentioned like, uh, I actually wanted to go back a little bit to the the beginning uh, with the, you mm-hmm. mentioned the socialization and then you are warming up with like music to to like try to uh, engage like uh, muscles. And I, it sounded like most of those, I don't want to get into, this would probably tack another 30 minutes onto the whole talk, so I don't want to get too into it, but it seemed like those are most like internal torque chain muscles, like especially like pecs, obliques, like stuff that, I don't know, maybe they're more phasic too, but 
I mean, could you maybe highlight some of those specific muscles, maybe just a couple and, and why, and then some of the methods you use to do that in that warm up? Yeah. So I've created a list of, I've worked with a lot of people and I've seen traumas and behavioral cycles in the bigger efferent muscles, so the bigger structural muscles. And so for me, I always like to first and foremost connect to the psoas major because it allows you to have a true connection to yourself. So it allows you to really see where your body is for the day. And then I, I, I love going to the pecs because we always need more pecs in our lives. Um, <laughs> but more importantly, the pecs bring uh, joy and pride mm. to self. So for me, I always like to go towards the pecs and the lats because the lats are part of the conference of the ego and the superego. And then as we go down to the bottom, if we're, I'm going to be doing something like a heavy back squat or something that requires aggression, then I'll start to warm up a lot more of the glutes. Like I said, the, the, usually the carries in the beginning of the warm-up will start to get the whole body to warm up and the whole body to be ready to do what it needs to do. But that's the reason that I usually go towards kind of like those bigger structural muscles in the upper body first. But doing the same thing with like demo deadlifts or holding at the bottom of a goblet squat and every time you hear the song, you go up and down. It's miserable to get the glutes going, doing glute bridges. You know, all, all of this stuff is is just depending on who you're working with. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's the reason for me is I can set a tone behaviorally if we connect to the muscles correctly. So again, actively connecting, bringing higher neural output. And that's one of the reasons I always have clients. One of my rules is we don't stop breathing, we don't stop moving hmm. or contracting, right? However you want to look at it. And the reason for that is, is I when you stop breathing, you are disconnecting the communication line, the subconscious communication line between the body and the brain. And so when I talk about these behavioral traits and these emotional cycles and the, the capacity to get your excitatory system to go up and to upregulate you, it requires an active presence. So when you have clients and you see them go for a lift or you see them about to go run and they're they're already anxious and trying to disconnect so cognitively they can get through it, right? And then when they go, they're trying to cognitively disconnect so that the mind can be quiet and they can survive it. Mm. And so for me, it's very important. If you're constantly breathing and truly connecting to the bigger efferent muscles, you're going to notice a change in your perception of the environment around you. Gotcha. So but that's... Yeah, go for it. Oh, sorry. I, I always jump in on like the pause. <laughs> I should have I should have figured this out by now. But I, I'm so impatient. Sorry. I sometimes I get you. You mentioned something, and I just get this. You know, I have these ideas in my head. I'm always just so excited to kind of throw them out there. But I, you know, it, it's almost like too. In addition to the muscles, and I, I will say just just quickly, I I notice I always notice this in myself, and this is always interesting. I warm up with um. This was a Jay Schrader exercise. I like doing an isometric push up to warm up, where I have like my hands on kettlebells, so I get in, like a little bit of a stretch. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not really. I guess I am. They're eccentrically contracting my pecs, but I'll do that for like. I find if I do it for over a minute thirty, if I, it's under a minute thirty, no effect. If it's over a minute thirty, and especially if it's over two, I stand up and actually feel like a different person, and I don't know why. Yeah. A and I'm like, holy yeah. shit! Like, what just happened? Like, is it some like energy like i don't know did i release something out of my muscles that i was holding on to i don't know and i'm not right. like and i i'm actually something too even in the talking with julian pinot like i realize i'm not a very pec facilitated person i'm a person who can crank out a ton of pull-ups 
I'm not as good at push-ups and I'm not as good at getting, you know, a huge pack pump per se. I'm more like shoulder, you know, deltoid type oriented. And I mean, that right. stuff's all just so fascinating to me. So I'm always like, oh, is there something, what, what is going on there? You know, that, 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 but that's cool. I'm like, I want more of that because why would I not want to start my warm up by clearing my mental space and feeling like, and it's always better. It's like a good feeling. And after doing, I'm like, oh, right. I couldn't imagine not feeling like this right now, you know? So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's always, um, if you make the connection, you'll see that change right now. Could you hold the kettlebells and zone out completely and not feel a difference for sure? And that's why I say like the exercise is the byproduct, but the key is the neural connection and opening up the pathways for your body to speak to your brain in this sort of subconscious level, if you will. And that creates these changes in behavior that it's, you know, like at first I was like, how is this possible? But then I just started mapping it out and I just started seeing patterns and patterns and patterns. And I haven't had a wrong pattern yet. (laughs) And I'm, you know, 2000 plus assessments in and working with clients of different levels. And it just, Again, the exercise is the byproduct and it's the active approach to getting better that will gear more performance, that will gear behavioral changes, that will gear the difference as to how to positively adapt to stressors that are happening in the real world. But yeah, just it's, it's, um, there's some fascinating things to, to look into on that one. The science isn't there yet. There's a few things that are coming on about the science. Uh, and I'm working with a doctor to create the proper study to kind of prove my craziness but yeah you can you can definitely change the behavior and your approach towards any sort of training situation if you can engage the right muscles yeah with the psoas how do you what are some movements that you like to help facilitate that connection specifically yeah uh the first one would be the the psoas so like the swami session i have it on the youtube channel like i mentioned uh doing psoas races it's time under tension and you know, I, I always tell people like it's hard to get proper connection to the psoas, right? More importantly, because it's always trying to work, and so it's not a muscle that you're like, oh, like the pecs, like you get a pec pump, you feel the pecs engorged, right? The psoas major, not so much, because it's supposed mm-hmm. to be working constantly as you're walking and you know doing everything else in life. But when you, when it stops working or the neural connection is not there, not stops working, but when, the, when there's less neural connection or it's, it's shortened or tight, it's because it's neurologically not feeling safe. So doing psoas races, long time under tension, just lay, leaning back a little bit on a chair and just starting to raise it and move it can allow you to gain massive awareness of it. Uh, there's a few videos out there that you guys can look up. Yeah, from there I do, depending on the type of clients that I have, like I have clients that have major back pain that haven't been able to leave their house because of the amount of discomfort they have and they're almost borderline going to go see a surgeon and have I actually just had an assessment yesterday with a girl that flew from Canada because she's two months away from getting surgery because they say that the femur head is too big for the hip and they're going to mm-hmm. do a whole hip replacement and five minutes of doing a swami session and so as races and the low back pain went from an eight to a zero mm-hmm. it's crazy and today she was walking all over she did the Anne Frank house that has stairs everything no hip pain, no low back pain. So the 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 psoas major is about. It's not about strengthening it. It's about gaining neural connection, and then it'll start to work in every facet mm. of you know your exercise. So Swami session, leg lifts, 
leg raises, and you're good to go. Cool. Man, just I- making sure that you're focusing on the psoas, not just lifting the leg. You can lift the leg many different ways. Man, I love that. I, I, it's funny because I'm thinking, I was like, oh, I always put my leg raises at the end of my sessions, like my speed day, like my speed days. I, yeah. I, I and that's another, like, it's just a very simple, like Jay Schrader move, just stand on one leg, lift the other leg, and, and hopefully you're feeling it not in your quad, in your, in your psoas or hip flexor. But I always put that at the end. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to put that at the beginning next time. <laughs> you know, just yeah, uh, get, it, get that going. You know, you're doing it right. And I'll send you the video if you want afterwards mm. of, of, of the demo. You know you're doing it right because you feel like you're walking actively, mm-hmm. like you're not just kind of like falling and stumbling, but it feels like your your stride becomes faster. So I'll send you the video so you can check it out. And yeah, you'll you'll you do it for again, do it for a song and you'll be like, holy shit. But then you'll go sprinting and you'll see you'll feel a lot more active in the runs. Yeah, it sounds good. Uh, just a couple last things here, Richard. Um one yeah. was uh, like the timing, like like doing workout you talked about, not holding your breath. And yeah. basically, like I know you will do things a lot consistently. Like you'll you'll put a song on, and when the next song starts, you go. Tell me about like workout format. I know a lot of times. I mean, maybe not so much in CrossFit. I think it's very much on a timer. I mean, I'm not, I'm actually yeah. not so versed, but talk about doing things maybe more on a timer throughout a training session versus hey, you know, you got five sets of five squats, then you got five sets of five pull, you know, and then you kind of do them as you, right. you know, your body goes, you go, you know, like, just tell me about the difference between, I guess, maybe more free session and something that has like intervals. To yeah. It. Yeah. Even if you have like your runners and stuff, right. So for me, I, as, if you guys haven't gotten it, I love random variations and variables. <laughs> yeah. So I love listening to music and basing or creating the tempo of my sets to music. Because if you think about it, a five by five, five reps is going to take you, you know, five to 20 seconds at most. Mm-hmm. That gives you about two minutes to rest. And so it allows you to really recover, to go back to going aggressively. If you're doing, you know, 100 meter sprints, that sounds like a perfect kind of ratio too, right? Like 10 to 12 seconds of sprinting, maybe like two minutes to rest, recover, really come back so you can give your all out effort on the next one. So I love using music as as kind of pacing tempo. That's one of the the approaches that I have. I am not an endurance athlete. I hate running. I yeah, it's just it's not my thing. But if I'm doing like a running session or something like that, I'll sprint as long as I can for the beginning of the song and then I'll walk or, you know, kind mm-hmm. of jog for the remainder of the song and basically nasal breathing only is one of the constraints so no holding of the breath and no <laughs> so i'm not truly losing the capacity or going towards the wrong state and this allows me to build my endurance level up and my ability to deal with the intensity of higher you know higher heart rates then you know the other ones that i have are usually like i'm very intuitive in my training so it's like what do i feel like going to, at today sometimes i feel more volume so i just go i'll pick you know, five to six exercises and I go a hundred reps per exercise and I just cycle through them for five rounds, six rounds. It just, yeah, just, it, it's always variations of how I feel like moving for the day. There's always like a general plan because depending on how I wake up and how I'm feeling. And then once I get to the gym, it's like, all right, I feel like going heavy today, heavy and short, or I feel like going longer and just kind of, you know, zone two. Like I've been doing a lot of playing with like staying in zone two while doing I'll pick six or seven exercises and nasal breathing only. And I get my heart rate at zone two and I keep it. And if I feel like I'm going to start losing it on one exercise and move on to the next and the next and the next, and I've been able to do like, you know, 57 minutes in pure zone two doing kind of more bodybuilding stuff. So Mm. bicep curls, bench press, goblet squats, 
leg press, leg extensions, things like that. And I'll just kind of cycle through them. You know, again, when you're training, just have fun. Like, just go have fun. Don't be so serious. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I've enjoyed, I was actually mentioning this on the, when I had Julian up, is, is um, I mean, I have it on my phone. So it's like, you know, it adds an extra technological element, a button to push, but it's like a card deck on the phone and you push it and you get a new card and I'll just have four exercises yeah. and it's like, you know, throw a sandbag over the shoulder, throw a sandbag for distance, swing a club and doing that and just pushing and they all correspond to what you do. That is so much more fun, especially on a day where you're not feeling it as much like a day where it's like, you know, right. all right, I'm not capable of the highest output today. So how can I have the most fun today and still yeah. get and a lot of times you'll do that training and then partway through it's like, you know, I could do a good output today if I wanted to actually after this, like right. after priming in a way that's fun and has more of those um, like you're not there's not as much expectation yeah. yeah and that's because you were going in with a certain expectation of something you didn't want to do yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then afterwards you're like oh no this is kind of fun and then you start to get into it. you 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 change the state that you were in so it allows you to go do what you were supposed to do or maybe something even better yeah last question for you here richard yeah. is and maybe this is almost the core of something i've wanted to you know as you've been talking this whole time is uh, survi- really survivorship. And I, I feel like in, in sports performance, conditioning is a, a lot of it can be, and especially too, I think there is a rampant over conditioning. I mean, I'm even saying like my neighbor's kids were like 12. They have foot, they just do crazy amounts of running at the end of their football practice. That's really nonspecific. And I, I think it's probably, you know, it's like, at what point is this just survivorship? And, and what point is it not? Like if you have a take on I guess, what is good conditioning and bad conditioning? And maybe it could just be from a general perspective, right. maybe not even tied to any sport. <laughs> I am curious to that because the pendulum swings really hard with this stuff. Both it's like, ways. oh, tons of conditioning, no conditioning. T- you know, I'm just curious, yeah, your take on the survivorship element, how can uh, and, and what, when conditioning can go too far from that perspective? Yeah, and uh, again, I would say for a general standpoint is, are you doing it as punishment or are you doing it to become better, mm. right? So if you're conditioning and you're just zoning out throughout the whole thing, you're not conditioning. You're just surviving and you're just trying to prove a point and you're punishing your body for no reason, which means that then you're going to perform less because it's going to take your body longer to recover. So you're, you're exposing it to stress in the wrong way, right? So cortisol levels will go up, you know, inflammation and everything else. So we live in cycles. So for me, it's like, how much is too much and how little is too little? You listen to Mike Tyson talk about his runs. And he's like, I didn't want to be there, but I knew that it was going to make me better. So it made me want to be there. Mm. Right. So going back to Mike Tyson, like if you're in it and you're chasing it, then fucking go for it. Cause you're in the right state of mind. If you're not in the state of, if you're doing it for somebody else and not for you, mm. it's too much conditioning, right? It's the wrong type of conditioning. Can it make you better? Yes, in the short term. In the long term, I don't think so. And that's when you see. That's when you'll see the crash. And again, for me, and and the work that I do is always about long term. So, what's going to happen once you're, you know, forty or thirty, or and you're no longer in the track and field, and you're no longer in your sport, or you're retired because you got injured, and you have a family, but now your whole body's broken. Is that what you want? Right? Like, let's 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 really put the do the math on these. On, on the pros and cons of how much we're sacrificing. And I understand pushing the limits and seeing what your body is capable of. It's great, but it's not about punishing your body. It's about, it's about expressing the amount of work that it can do because you want to do it. Mm-hmm. And that changes the entire perspective of how much is too much. So 
I would say if you're going to be doing conditioning, do it auto-regulated. There's no timer. There's no, you know, there's no objective to doing it, but you getting better. And that, and you get to decide. So rather than saying, I'm going to do 15 hill sprints, how about I'm going to do hill sprints until I feel that I can't go faster than the one before, right? Or I'm going to do, you know, go run 10 miles. How about we just go run? And when you feel like you're done, you go home, right? Maybe push it a little bit past the point of I'm going to go home because that could be a quitting mechanism. But you know what I mean? Like you can start to really play around with with different domains and different guidelines as to where it is that you want to be. And so the 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 key is making sure that you are going for the hunt, not you're being hunted. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of the issues that I see when I see when I see when I train high level athletes, um, I see I see them when they're wanting to go hunting, when they want to go fight, when they want to get it, and when they're just destroyed. But physically they could do anything, but mentally and emotionally they're not there. I'm like, sorry, you're not going to make it. You'll make it to this tier level because you have a fuck ton of talent, but past this, you're not going to go. You know, and that's 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 the harder conversations to have when you're a coach. You know, and and for me, it's like I can show you the potential you have, but you're lazy, bro. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, be running a 5K versus running a 5K actively is way different, right? Holding the five minute lunge to holding an active five minute lunge where you don't go to your lower back, you don't go to your mm-hmm. knee. Like you don't stack it on the joints. Like you keep that hamstring on a true isometric mm-hmm. contraction. Oh, bro, that's miserable, right? So be active about what you're doing with your conditioning and don't go to to you losing that fight because then you start to, that's a learned behavior then, right? Then you're constantly going to a loss and that's what you start to learn. And then you'll never go past that point of performance. Yeah. Everything will always be sabotaged. Those are the people that are like, Dude, I was going to do great at this meet, but the training before this killed me. Well, bro, that wasn't the point wasn't to kill you during the training. The point was to win the meet. Like, do you not understand where the climax is? Yeah. <laughs> you skipped the foreplay, bro. Yeah. <laughs> we needed <Yeah>. to build <laughs> up. <laughs> you know, and so and that's the job of a coach as well, right? Because you know, when you have those high level athletes, like, I just want to go. And there's the anxiety because I need to make sure that I can run that time again. I need to, and so you're like, no, no, you have it. Like, that's your job as a coach more than anything. Physically, they're there, right? Especially when you're dealing with high-end athletes, like, they're already there, man. They need more help physically, mentally, and emotionally than anybody else. Because the body is already hurt. So a, the physical part will be more of the structural creating mm-hmm. safety in the body so it can perform and doesn't break down. But more than anything, it's like, can you keep the nerves at bay until they really need to come out at the meat to fucking kill it? So not to under condition people depending on what your sport is but you know if you're doing conditioning for miles and miles and miles and you're training for a minute 30 400 meter run what is it that you're training for i'd rather do random variable 400 meter runs so you can learn to adjust Mm -hmm. to go at high intensity for that 400 meters and not get your heart spiked and your lactate levels through the roof because of the anxiety of the last 30 seconds before the 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 gun shoots and you have to run Right. And more, most of the anxiety is performing in front of a crowd and being judged and having people that are just as good, if not better than you. So I'd rather perform more short term conditioning pieces that are random, that are going to force you to deal with those stressors. So when you go to the, the meet, you're like, I fucking got this. Yeah. I've prepared for this. You know, that's what, that's what all the Navy SEALs training and all of that is, is they, they can't be soft to you because you're going to go to a war zone. 
That's what the track meet is. That's what the football game is. It's a fucking war zone. It doesn't mean that you go to war every day. You train for it, and then you go to war, and then you have to recover from it. You don't have PTSD of what happened, whether good or bad, and you can get better. It's an evolution. So good or bad conditioning is based on the person and where they're, why they're doing yeah. it. Not so if you're doing it for a punishment, you know, I'm sure you know those people that the meat's coming up and they start to add three a days yeah. and their body's just destroyed. And by the time they get to the meat, they're performing at 70% of what they really could be performing or lower, you know? So it, it's, it's that fine balance. I love the how much of it is sabotage. <laughs> the the hunter and hunted like that that just um I'm assuming it's called like things that that are um it's it's words but almost it hits you on a visceral level too you know as you're going yeah. through it and I remember when I was in um, my senior year of high school I, I've I've told this story it's like I'm regurgitating stories I've told the podcast but it fits <laughs> so well with what you're saying here because I it was a I remember my basketball coach was killing us with like tons of wind sprints and suicide sprints and change of direction sprints at the end of every practice. And it was like for about three, four, maybe three, four weeks span. And I remember it was so much I had kind of stopped. I used to go home and lift weights in my basement after some practices just to, but I, it was so much I was even like going very low on that. And you would think that, oh, all that conditioning with those extra sprints, I mean, it is a sprint, right? So it is explosive, but it was a lot. It was, it was a good volume. But I remember at the end of that stretch, I remember I just felt really good after like, 15 20 minutes of sprinting just shook my legs out went and i jumped and i touched i'm six one i touched about three inches over the top of the score on the backboard so I touched about 11 7 i mean i got up like it wow. was i like exploded off the ground and i remember in those sprints my coach was always saying if joel smith you're the fastest guy on the team you beat the point guard like like every day and it was putting me in a hunter mind state not right uh Oh God, I just got to finish this sprint and then I can go home. Like I was not in that mindset. It was like everyone you're going out to hunt. And even though you're tired and your heart rate's high and maybe you, you're out of the, the neat little explosive window that you need to be in for your power sprinting or whatever. Like I still had the intention of being a hunter on all those, a lot of those sprints. And I think that if right. I would have gone, if I go now and I'm like, all right, well, I did 15 sprints that day and, I'm, and I just did them by myself, you know, and hit the time even, right. it wouldn't be the same. And yeah, and it, yeah. imagine if if by the third sprint of each day you're like, "Fuck, we have more." You know, which was the last, the bottom eighty percent. So during the off season, it's fucking needed because for a coach, you're being able to see who's going to be the one that's out there hunting when you get tired, right? Who gets hungry and wants to go chase, and who's the one that's just like, "Oh fuck, dude, another one," <laughs> right? So you you you're playing off of those as well. Like you you do need to build the mental resiliency. Don't get me wrong; I don't want mm -hmm. softness. I want kindness. So him going, bro, you're the fastest sprinter. You're going to kill it. You got to beat him. You got to beat him. That's being kind. It's called tough love, mm -hmm. right? Him being soft would be like, fuck, I'm tired, coach. Yeah, go sit on the bench. No, bro, because we still have three quarters to go. You know what I mean? Like, you still have to play. So that we've, we've, within the strength and conditioning world, especially like at a high school level, you see coaches that weren't being, some of them were being kind and others were just being dumb. You mm. know what I mean? Like there's that difference. And again, information versus knowledge and wisdom. Building your athletes up so they can go hunting is one thing, but just being an asshole and just having them run to mm, run and say, yeah. you're not fast enough. You're not this, you're not that. You're going to build up maybe one of those kids. But for the most part, everyone's going to be like, fuck this thing, dude. Mm. You know what I mean? And they're going to break. And so there's a difference between being kind and being soft or being an asshole, you know, like 
you need to you need to be kind you need to be caring when 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 you know you're you know if we're doing that and you see that there's you know these four kids that are just not doing well being caring is like all right let's have a seat what's going on at home what's going on at what's happening how can we make you better as a coach right and so when we start to condition kids to survive this stuff and to punish themselves through this conditioning, it leads through the rest of the life. Like I see it now when I'm dealing with mm. high corporate executives and burnout athletes and, you know, they just don't even know what is like, they don't know how to explore themselves without punishment. They think that training is punishment. I'm like, no, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, your body is a great place where you're, you're able to explore its capacity. It doesn't need to be a fucking Jason the 13. Like, why do you need to run fucking 10 kilometers every day? You know what I mean? Like, what are you running from? Let's start with that. You know what I mean? But you start to condition this sort of non-mental, non-emotional, physical part of training outside of the sport, which is for a very small percentage needed. But for the most part, we st- we, we start to lose that regulation side of it right? That hunting side, that excitement of it. And it just becomes, tell me what to do and I'll do it. And now you're passively hoping that this is going to help you. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. It's, it's such a, I mean, I, I feel like I have more things I could ask you, but I'll keep pushing <laughs> the, you know, pushing like tacking 10 minutes on 10 minutes on. You, I, I really have enjoyed this conversation, Richard, tremendously. And it, it's just, I, I love how, as I talk to you, like you're reminding me of this time where it was this, this setting, this emotion, this element. And it's like, that's why that makes sense. You know, it's, and yeah. I think the more we can understand about those three elements, I think the better place we'll be in. Uh, do you want to, before we get out of here, can you tell us where, where can people find more about you, your coaching or education or anything more about what you're doing? Yeah. So I have uh, richardaceves.com for all my personal services and I'm developing, it's right now it's move.thinkific.com. And that's where I have all my education stuff for coaches to come on board. And I have other coaches that are going to be putting on courses on there as well. And on Instagram, I'm Rare Barracuda. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for being on the show today, Richard. It was really oh, great pleasure, talking. Man. Time flew by, so thanks again. It went by fast. Absolutely, man. Have a good one. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll see you next week.